You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1897th edition of St Edinburgh News Talk for the 22nd of September 2022. The editor of this edition is Claire Meller, the producer is Harvey Johnson and your readers are Harvey Johnson and Sue Harrington-Spear. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We will repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. And now we go on to the headlines. Headline 1. The News Talk Editorial, the 22nd of September 2022. The Berry Free Press for Friday the 16th of September was necessarily full of tributes to Queen Elizabeth II and included an eight-page commemorative supplement with lots of photos. The front page of the paper features a lovely smiling portrait of the Queen wearing a bright two-tone blue outfit. The supplement front page shows her in rich purple. She was the most photographed woman in the world and I understand it was the norm for Her Majesty to wear bright colours when attending public events. This was in order that, because she was slight of stature, she could be seen, i.e. stand out in the crowd. I have also noticed that in recent years her hat had also got taller. Along with several photos in black and white, the supplement and main paper are filled with photos and memories of her various visits to our area during the 70 years of her reign. In all of the local papers, there are only a couple of readers' letters, but there are lots of memories from local citizens of their interactions with Her Majesty, and they are included in this edition of News Talk. These anecdotes are sure to raise a smile or jog your own memories. And the second headline, firm in U-turn over closure for Queen's funeral. Centre Parks has reversed a decision to close its accommodation for the Queen's funeral on Monday after backlash from guests. Customers have been told they would be asked to leave at 10am on Monday for 24 hours, forcing them to find alternative accommodation. After receiving complaints, Centre Parks, which has a site in Elfton, has offered to allow guests on longer-duration breaks to remain on site on Monday. The villages are still set to close at 10am on Monday, meaning guests will not be able to use any facilities, and Centre Parks has offered a 17% refund of the lodge cost to affected visitors. In a statement, the firm said, Like many businesses, we have taken the decision to close all our UK villages on Monday, September the 19th. The vast majority of our guests are either due to arrive or depart on Monday, September the 19th. We have, however, reviewed our position regarding the very small number of guests who are not due to depart on Monday, and we will be allowing them to stay on our villages rather than having to leave and return on Tuesday. The villages will still remain closed on Monday and we will be offering a discount for the lack of facilities available on that day. Holidays at the villages start on Fridays or Mondays and last three, four, 
all seven nights. Before the U-turn, guest Tracy Groom, 58, a consultant who lives near Manchester, was concerned about where her party of nine would stay after she booked a seven-night stay at Centre Park's Elveton Forest. The trip, due to begin on Friday, cost more than £2,500. She told the PA news agency, I'm very sure it would not be what the Queen or the Royal Family wants. I'm sure they will not want everybody who was due to go to Centre Parks on a holiday to have their holidays spoiled, and for them to have this stress of trying to organise something different. Morning guidance from the Cabinet Office says, Depending on the nature and location of their business, and the tone of planned events, some businesses may wish to consider closing or postponing events, especially on the day of the state funeral. However, this is at the discretion of individual businesses. And headline number three, concerned passengers disgusted by decision to axe bus routes. Stagecoats has announced that as of Sunday, October the 30th, a total of 18 routes will be withdrawn from service. This includes the 11-13 route, Cambridge, Newmarket, Bury St Edmunds, and the 12 route, Cambridge, Newmarket, Ely. Concerned Fordham resident Gemma Forty Wright will now struggle with getting her 17-year-old daughter to West Suffolk College each day. Like most other parents, I work full-time, so I can't give her a lift to school or give her a lift to and from the train station. It's very frustrating, said Gemma. The petition Gemma started in an attempt to save the bus services has already reached 1,800 signatures, a figure growing steadily as more discover that their regular bus service will be disappearing. Another working mum, Becky Brown, shelled out £650 for an annual bus pass at the start of the term. Becky said the lack of post-16 provision in Newmarket had driven her child further afield to Bury St Edmunds, so providing adequate transport links was the least that could be done. I am disgusted, she said. It will cost over £1,000 a year to send her on the train and I'll be expecting a full refund if she can't take the bus any more. Alongside issues with education, transport, concerns have arisen surrounding those who cannot drive for health reasons. Kerry Risley O'Reilly has multiple sclerosis and said, I currently drive and am well, but I have MS and don't know when I may have to access buses. Many disabled people don't have mobility transport either. Melaska Agnieszka added to this by saying she was worried about getting herself and her children to hospital appointments in Cambridge and Bury St Edmunds. Managing Director of Stagecoast East Darren Rowe said, The 18 affected routes have been losing £12 per passenger per journey on average. Some of them, where numbers have dropped as low as around only 50 customers per week, are costing up to £80 per passenger. We cannot continue to operate services which we know are no longer financially viable. That would not be right for taxpayers or our passengers. Responding to concerns from parents, a spokesman from West Suffolk College said, It's disappointing that the decision has been made, especially part way through an academic year. But we will be actively speaking with the bus company and working with them to see if these routes can be continued. West Suffolk MP Matt Hancock has said, I am deeply concerned by Stagecoat's proposal to no longer run its vital bus services connecting Newmarket and Bury St Edmunds to Cambridge from the end of October. 
These services provide a lifeline to so many people and their removal will not only have a huge and detrimental effect on the local community but on the environment too. From children and young adults attending college to the elderly who rely on these important services to get around. Their proposed removal is not acceptable and I will do all I can to fight the decision. I want to reassure all those with concerns that I'm in touch with Stagecoach and will get to the bottom of this. And the last fair four headlines. New hospital scheme takes a step forward. The major project to build a new West Suffolk hospital is moving forward as initial archaeological work can now get underway. West Suffolk MP and former Health Secretary Matt Hancock MP said he welcomed the progress made for a new hospital in Bury St Edmunds as West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust takes further steps to making the scheme a reality. The Trust has been developing the proposal which would see a new diagnostic centre among other facilities built in West Suffolk. The MP said he was thrilled to see the Trust being able to draw down funding which is enabling the project to move forward, including beginning exploratory archaeological works in support of the outlined planning application. Mr Hancock said, This important step shows commitment to delivering a new hospital for West Suffolk and ensuring that both staff and patients have access to world-class facilities as part of this transformational programme. I'm also delighted to see the approval of the business case for a new community diagnostic centre at Newmarket Community Hospital in my constituency, which will increase capacity of diagnostic services and give patients more choice of where they can access their care. In August, revised plans for the new hospital on land at Hardwick Manor in Hardwick Lane were submitted to West Suffolk Council. The proposed development would include a multi-storey car park and a bus interchange. The full planning application can be seen on the West Suffolk Council website www.westsuffolk.gov.uk And now for some general news. Kat finds peace after fleeing home in war-torn Ukraine. At first, she said, I would cry a lot. Maybe it was shock. Some of my friends still have panic attacks. A mum who had to flee her home in war-torn Ukraine says she has found peace in Bury St Edmunds. Kat Budaniuk was forced to evacuate her apartment in the centre of Kiev just days after Russian forces invaded the capital in February this year. Living close to government buildings, the 48-year-old and her 22-year-old daughter Anna had no choice but to flee as shooting started. At first Kat and Anna lived in the underground car park of their 27-storey apartment block. She then began a two-month journey across six European countries before arriving in the UK. We travelled on trains, first to Lviv in the west of Ukraine, then to Poland. We didn't sleep for the first five nights after we left, said Kat. It was all mothers, everyone was in shock. There would be 15 people in a dark four-person carriage. Kat, who ran an estate agent's business in Kiev, as well as working as a marketing director, then stayed in Poland, Czech Republic, Germany, Italy and France before arriving in England at the end of, in April. It was scary not knowing where we were going, but everywhere people were supportive, said Kat. I posted my details on Facebook and that's how I found people to stay with. Kat stopped looking at the news after a month and instead learnt only what was happening in her home country through messages to her mum 
Olga, 67, who stayed in Kiev to look after Kat's grandmother, Rima, aged 94. News from Ukraine is terrifying and fills me with sorrow, so I only learn what is happening when I check every day that my mum and grandmother are safe, she said. Through Facebook, Kat was contacted by a couple from Bury St Edmunds who offered her a place to stay for six months. I was sent messages from around the country, but I knew Cambridge and I googled Bury, said Kat. For a few months after leaving, I would cry a lot. Maybe it was shock. Some of my friends still have panic attacks. I immediately fell in love with the Abbey Gardens and visit most days. It reminded me of Downton Abbey and I found peace there. Kat has also found a job as a lettings and sales assistant at Watley Lane Estate Agents in Churchgate Street. The job has also enabled her to rent her own place to live. I feel like everyone I've met along the way has been an angel and I'm thankful to them all, she said. Pilgrim UK has announced a proposed closure of its Bury St Edmunds site as part of a business recovery plan across the UK operations. Over the last 18 months, the UK pig sector has faced the most challenging time in its history due to the increases in production costs, falling pig prices, a decline in demand, labour shortages and restrictions on the ability to export from some sites. The ongoing challenges resulted in Pilgrim UK recording an operating loss of £16 million for the year to December 26, 2021. As part of the firm's business recovery plan, it identified some underutilised sites and has proposed to close its Eastern Way site and transfer the lamb and bacon operations to Andover and Linton. The proposal puts around 290 employees at risk of redundancy. The business will enter into collective consultation with effective employees in the coming days, following the election of employee representatives. Rachel Baldwin, Pilgrim UK's Vice President of HR, said, The decision to propose the closure of our Berry site has not been taken lightly, but is unfortunately essential to help our business recover and secure a sustainable future for all of our team members across the UK. Clearly, this announcement will have major implications, not just for our site, but the entire local community. We will do everything we can to minimise the impact of these proposals, working closely with local authorities and agencies to support our team members through what we know will be an extremely difficult period. And now Matt Hancock is paying tribute to Her Majesty and he says Her Majesty led by example. This past week has been one of great sadness, a moment when the whole country stopped. As a nation we have collectively mourned the loss of Queen Elizabeth II and reflected on our gratitude for the life and service of arguably this country's greatest ever monarch. Throughout her 70 years on the throne the Queen has been a rock of stability for our nation. She embodied so much of our shared history and represented our great union around the world. Her service, dedication and duty have inspired us all. The Queen's death is not just a loss for the United Kingdom, but for the world. When Her Majesty's passing was announced, I had the honour of paying tribute to her in the House of Commons on behalf of West Suffolk. Like so many of my colleagues, I was able to tell the Chamber how we had lost the greatest statesman of our time. 
I was privileged enough to be able to share my personal gratitude too, thanking this wonderful lady for the advice and support she gave me as health secretary. I will never forget her kindness nor her words of reassurance. Not only did she offer hope during some of the darkest days of the pandemic, but she played a vital role in encouraging people to have all the all-important vaccine by doing what she did best, leading by example. The Queen came to Suffolk frequently. One visit I remember fondly was when she came to open the National Horse Racing Museum in Newmarket. She spent time talking to everyone in the room, shaking hands and giving every single person her unbated attention. That dedication to service was always striking to me, but it wasn't until she was finally introduced to the horses that her smile rarely lit up. Those four-legged friends were her passion, and it was evident by the smile on her face how much they meant to her. When the Queen became monarch, she took over a realm and an empire in transition. After a war which had shaken the social fabric of every country it touched, she represented modernity, becoming queen when women were expected to be subservient. At this time, the world was looking to mend itself politically, economically and socially, with little knowledge of what the results would look like. Times like these in history are not often kind to monarchies. Yet, while empires and monarchies fell, the queen remained a symbol of stability in an ever-changing world. As colonies became independent, the Queen kept countries a world away from one another in voluntary unison, for no other reason except they wanted her to remain their head of state, or at least maintain a connection with her. The Commonwealth, which for decades has brought the world together in friendship, may not have come to pass without her. It is this mingling of the personal and the institutional which she did so well. The monarch plays a vital constitutional role, one which the strength of our political system can be attributed to. Yet I do not know a soul who would say that this is the basis of their love for the Queen. The real reason is almost always this personal relationship each of us feels we had with her, an emotional reach which allowed each of her subjects to feel like they had a distinctly personal relationship with her. I was reminded of this fact by my daughter, now in her late teens, who vividly remembers meeting the Queen in Newmarket when she was young enough to be forgiven for forgetting. We all have memories from our childhood which retain a certain clarity, for some ill-defined reason, despite being surrounded by the naturally opaque fog of fading memories. For my daughter, presenting that flower to the Queen is such a memory just a brief encounter which has remained with her all these years and shaped her relationship with the Queen in a uke and deeply personal way. It made me realise that, whether it be from yearly Christmas messages, openings of Parliament, videos of Commonwealth tours, watching royal weddings on TV, or, if lucky enough, real-life encounters, we all have these memories of the Queen which stay with us. And now we have a King. I was fortunate enough to have been invited to Westminster Hall on Monday to hear our new monarch, King Charles III, deliver his speech. It was an important moment for us as MPs to pledge allegiance and for him as sovereign to reiterate that our democracy depends on an elected House of Commons and that his role is to ensure the liberties of people, rising above politics but ensuring our democracy thrives. That balance between a monarchy that defends democracy yet does not offer a view on politics and democratically elected politicians who respect the monarchy's position above politics is the cornerstone of our constitution 
and the source of strength on which our national way of life is built. We may have lost our nation's constant, but the Crown, the nation and all of us as individuals continue to feel the support and warmth of our royal family. Thank you, Ma'am, and God save the King. Dignities who paid tribute to the late Majesty included Councillor Mike Chester, Chairman of West Suffolk Council. He said Queen Elizabeth II was a well-known and much-loved figure in our part of the world. Her abiding passion for horse racing made her a frequent visitor to her national home, Newmarket, and the visits she made to Bury St Edmunds, especially the celebration of her Golden Jubilee, live long in local memory. Indeed, she visited many places in West Suffolk where her interest in the lives of those who live and work here were appreciated by all who met her. At a time when changes to our everyday lives are continuous, the Queen was a constant. Her dedication to the duty of being our monarch was exemplary, especially to those in or aspiring to public service. Her experience, knowledge and compassion were appreciated by so many people, and to put it simply, we will miss her tremendously. Our thoughts are with the royal family at this difficult time, the sadness at their loss is shared by us all. Councillor James Caston, Mid-Suffolk District Council Chairman, said, The loss of Her Majesty the Queen will be felt personally and profoundly all across the district and our nation. She had a long and eventful life, and it was well lived. We think of her with sadness today, but also with joy for what she brought to this great country. She reigned for over seven decades of incredible British history and for the vast majority of us, she has been the monarch for our whole lives. For Councillor Robert Everett, Chairman of Suffolk County Council, said it was impossible to remember a time when the Queen was not part of the fabric of our lives. To me, the decades of unbroken, faultless and consistent public service stand as Her Majesty's greatest legacy, he said. When you look back on her reign, which saw so much change for this country, so many scientific and cultural advancements, so much peril and challenge, throughout it all there was always a calming, steadfast constant, Her Majesty the Queen. He noted her first visit to Suffolk in July 1961, when she sailed on the Royal Yacht Britannia into Shotley at HMS Ganges, drove through Suffolk to open the Civic College in Ipswich, and on to see the plans for the cathedral extensions in Bury St Edmunds. Again in July 1977, she toured the county celebrating her Silver Jubilee, entertained by Morris Dancers and a specially commissioned composition by Benjamin Britten. In April 2009, when she distributed Monde Money at St Edmundsbury Cathedral, she said, Our sense of what it is to be British derives as much from the treasured towns, villages and coastline of East Anglia as it does from the great cities like London or Birmingham. From talking to the Queen to receiving correspondence or a one-to-one encounter during a significant annual occasion, readers have been sharing their experiences of brushes with Her Majesty. Former Royal Marine Commando Alex Speechley has recounted his time as a guard on board the Royal Yacht Britannia from 1964 until his retirement from service in 1967. 
the 83-year-old, who lives in Berison Edmonds, was stationed in North Africa when he was told he had a new assignment. He said, I was called to the Sergeant Major's office and he said, Pack your gear, you're going back to the UK, you're going to join the Royal Family. I flew back to the UK and I was told to report to the Royal Yacht, which was in Portsmouth at the time. I found out that four of us were to do around-the-clock security for the royal family. Our job was to keep watch on the royal apartments, making sure no one got in. The first trip that Mr Speechley was to embark on with the royal family was to Iceland with the Duke of Edinburgh and famous conservationist Sir Peter Scott. I didn't enjoy that because I was seasick, he said. It was my first time at sea, rarely. I was standing outside Prince Philip's bedroom in the middle of the night with my head in a bucket. During his time with the royals, he travelled all around the world, including to the West Indies, New Zealand, Mexico and America. One memory he recalled with great fondness was when he was travelling across the Atlantic with the royal family. The royals wanted to play a game on deck which involved a net and quoits. Mr Speechley and a few staff went out to help prepare the games. I was balancing on the taffrail trying to put the net on the hook and every time I got near the hook someone pulled it, he said. That happened about three times. In the end I turned round and said, Who's the... Oh, Your Majesty. (laughs) She was there laughing her head off. When I got down, I heard her say, Off with his head. (laughs) Freddie Montgomery, 93 of Elmswell, was one of those who received Maundy money from the Queen during her visit to Bury St Edmunds on Maundy Thursday, 2009. The Queen gave out specially minted coins to 83 people during the Maundy service, which was held at St Edmundsbury Cathedral that year, in recognition of each individual's work in their community. This week, Freddie recalled the event. It was quite an experience, it was a beautiful service, and the Maundy money is quite something to receive, said Freddie. I was quite near the front. The money was on a big tray, and I curtsied when the Queen reached me, but we weren't allowed to speak until she spoke to us. It's something that you do remember. It was lovely to meet her on such an occasion. Joe Lockyer, head teacher of Old Newton Church of England Primary School in Old Newton, said receiving a Platinum Jubilee thank you letter from the Queen was tinged with sadness as it arrived in the week of her death. She said they opened the letter and card featuring Her Majesty's photograph on Thursday morning. The Queen's death was announced later that day. The correspondence from Her Majesty, which arrived at the school on September the 6th, said, I send you my grateful thanks for your kind message on the occasion of the 70th anniversary of my accession to the throne. A letter written by the Queen's Lady-in-Waiting, dated, dated August the 20th, said Her Majesty was glad to hear from the school, and although unable to reply personally, greatly appreciated the nice things you said. I am to thank you again for your message of good wishes to the Queen in this, her Platinum Jubilee year, it said. Mrs Lockyer said students had sent the Queen cards and letters to celebrate the milestone. Speaking on Friday, she said the response from Her Majesty was tinged with sadness due to its timing. We literally posted on Twitter yesterday morning, September the 8th, and as the morning went on we were getting the news and thinking, my goodness, she said. And now... A memento from Terry Waite, who says it was an example of her care. Former hostage Terry Waite has spoken of Queen Elizabeth II's generosity following his release from solitary confinement, which lasted nearly five years. 
the 83-year-old of Hartis near Bury St Edmunds, has decided to share the Queen's act of kindness as a tribute to her and convey what a remarkable human being she was. Mr Waite was held captive in Lebanon from 1987. At the time, he was Archbishop of Canterbury's envoy and was negotiating the release of captured Britons when he himself was taken hostage. A few weeks after his release in 1991, he and his wife and four children were invited by the Queen to stay at Balmoral in the cottage Princess Anne used. We dined with the royal family at weekends, and the rest of the time everything was provided, he said. It was an example of her care and compassion. That's the sort of person she was. Mr Waite believes that we can all learn fortitude, resilience and compassion from the late Queen, a tribute she showed during her reign. A huge fire tore through a derelict motel in Red Lodge over the weekend, with emergency responders called in from Bury St Edmunds and Newmarket to help tackle the blaze. An incident was declared in Turnpike Road around 6.13pm on Saturday. A Suffolk police spokesman said the blaze was being treated as a suspected arson. Due to the seriousness of the blaze, over 20 fire engines attended at various points throughout the night and Sunday morning. In certain parts of the structure, fires were still raging by Sunday afternoon. On Sunday afternoon, crews carried out a controlled demolition of the building's roof. This was deemed necessary due to the structural unsoundness of the complex. Exhibition on former refugee camp. A commemorative event is taking place to mark 50 years since Ugandan Asians arrived in Stradishal after they were expelled from their country by former President Idi Amin. Wickenbrook History Society, along with British Ugandan Asians at 50, are hosting an exhibition at Wickenbrook Memorial Hall on September the 24th and 25th that will be opened by the Lord Lieutenant of Suffolk, Lady Clare, Countess of Euston. The refugees came to the Stratishall Camp near Bury St Edmunds via Stansted Airport from September to November 1972. The camp was decommissioned RAF base that had been empty for about two years and was hastily recommissioned to take in the Uganda nations. It was in use for six months and housed a total of 3,294 refugees who were then all resettled. Police are treating a huge straw blaze that broke out in a Suffolk airfield as a suspected arson. The fire is believed to have been started between 4pm and 5.30pm on Saturday at the former Great Waldingfield airfield near Sudbury. Police said about 750 tonnes of straw were set alight, causing thousands of pounds worth of damage. A group of boys and girls were seen on the straw stacks prior to the fire, which officers believe were started deliberately. Police are now appealing for any witnesses to the incident to come forward, quoting crime reference number 37 stroke 60203 stroke 22. Missing wanted man is arrested. A man who's been missing for nearly three months and wanted by police has been arrested. Chaz Thacker, 30, of Cockfield, was arrested in Hertfordshire on September the 6th. He was reported missing on June the 15th, three days after he was last spotted in Tilbury. He was wanted in connection to a criminal investigation. A police spokesman thanked the public for their help.
Now the next uh, item here is headed Deanery Staircase Set to Stay. Now in case you're unfamiliar with the Deanery in Bury St Edmunds, near the Great Churchyard, it's a fine red brick building built on an E-shaped plan. Lots of windows and chimneys, a very fine building indeed, surrounded by iron railings. And this is the item. A grand early 20th century staircase built at Bury St Edmunds Deanery will be preserved as an application to demolish it has been refused. West Suffolk Council's Development Control Committee heard the Dean of St Edmundsbury, the very Reverend Joe Halls, plea to adapt the listed building so community groups could use it, but refused his application on the basis of recommendations by Historic England, the Victorian Society and the Conservation Officer. The Grade 1 listed deanery is located within the Abbey Gardens and Precincts and was originally built in 1744 as an almshouse. In 1898, the building was sold to the church as a vicarage and the entrance hall staircase was built after this. Officers pointed to flaws in the argument that removing the large staircase would benefit the public by giving room for community groups to meet at the deanery. They stated the building is owned privately and could be sold to an owner who does not use it for community group meetings. Mr Halls, who plans to use the deanery as his home and a place of hospitality, said, I was alarmed that some members were unconvinced by the level of public benefit. The use of a deanery derives substantial public benefit. It's about working with committed community partners who will be able to use the space. We would be pleased to accept any conditions that you might impose today as to how we demonstrate public benefit. It can only happen by the relocation of the staircase to provide that space. Successive deans have tried to do this and failed. I hope I will be the dean who succeeds. In July, committee members approved listed planning permission for the same changes rejected in the latest application. This followed a split vote and a deciding vote by the chairman. The decision was contrary to officer recommendations, so they then prepared a risk assessment. It was on the basis of this that councillors refused the application. The recommendation to refuse listed planning permission was agreed by 12 votes to 3, with one abstention. And now we're going to look back with Martin Taylor. Local historian, author and tour guide, Martin Taylor has trawled through his archives to find some of his favourite Bury St Edmunds pictures and stories from the past. And this week it's the Fennel Homes in St Andrew Street North, or the Fennel Homes 57-59 to 59 St Andrew Street North, also known as the Quaker Homes, were the first purpose-built flats in Bury St Edmunds. Brother and sister Samuel and Sarah Fennel were Quakers and lived at 2 Mary Square. St Mary's Square, I beg your pardon, and were notorious for their tightness. Therefore, it was not surprising that when they passed away, they had accrued a considerable sum of money, the main beneficiary being Sarah Bott, another Quaker. The Fennels would have turned in their graves if they knew what she intended to do with their money. Using the legacy, Sarah set up a charitable foundation, the Fennel Trust, with which new homes would be built for respectable women in reduced circumstances, with some income of their own. They also had to read the Bible to the poor. 
Early in November 1870, she arranged for plans to be drawn up by an architect with a somewhat colourful name of Brightwin Binion, and in August 1872, land to the rear of the Quaker Meeting House in St John Street was given to her by the Society of Friends for the project. However, she met opposition from her brothers, James and William Bott, who tried to get her declared insane. But with the help of a good friend, Samuel Moore, from Needham Market, she weathered the storm and by 1874 the red brickwork with white brick ornamentation, along with a flight of stairs at each gable end, gave access to the first floor, was completed by buried builder Mr Tooley. Mary Ann Rudderham, the first resident, moved in soon after. Sarah made a will safeguarding the future of the homes and left a bequest to her sister Mary, but to the others, nothing. Sarah later moved to Hatfield Peville from where she had originated. Today, the Fennel homes are run by the Guildhall Feffman Trust and are Grade 2 listed. <laughs> I found that rather fascinating. Yes, quite. I always wondered what that building was. Now you know. <laughs> uh, the next uh, item comes under the heading Hospital Friends Launch Web Shop for Ward Deliveries. A hospital charity has launched a new online shop to help raise funds and offer a service to families, staff and visitors at West Suffolk Hospital. The Friends of West Suffolk Hospital hope people will use <coughs> beg your pardon, hope people will use the online shop to order items for delivery to patients or staff on the wards, with anything ordered before eleven AM Monday to Friday delivered to wards the same day. Sarah Steele, Treasurer and Lizzie English, Friends Shop Manager, are behind the project which was inspired by a similar scheme launched by the Friends of Milton Keynes Hospital. Lizzie said that since Friends volunteers who ran the shop's trolley service to the wards had to stop because of the pandemic, the charity had been looking at other ways to promote shop sales. I had the idea in my head for a long time, and you have to keep up with being current and fresh, especially when Covid struck and we could not get the trolleys round any more said Lizzie. We feel we want to continue to provide a first-class service for patients, their families and staff, in fact anybody that comes into contact with us. Sarah said the friends had seen a drop-off in trade through the pandemic and hoped the online shop would help address that. We had to focus on keeping the shop operational during Covid, but now we're coming out of it, we felt the time was right to embark on this new venture, said Sarah. For the online shop at www.wsfriendshop.co.uk And now I've just got um, an article about our new king. Um, so this is entitled Our New Monarch and Monarch's Religious and Military Links with the Region. King Charles III has a long association with West Suffolk and has visited several times. The former Prince of Wales played a key role in St Edmundsbury Cathedral's Millennium Tower scheme, being patron of the six-year £10 million project. He laid the first brick of the project in 2001, after initially visiting the cathedral in early 1998. He visited again in 2003, 2005 and 2011. The 1998 visit saw the then Prince treated to a tour of the cathedral. In July 2001, he visited to lay the first brick of the 150-foot tower. 
At the royal visit in June 2003, Visit saw crowds brave heavy downpours to wait for the prince as he inspected the tower. In July 2005, Charles and Camilla visited to mark the project's completion. In July 2009, he was at Washington Airfield to present Operational Service Medals to 4 Regiment Army Air Corps. Then in July 2010, he was back in Bury to take the salute as 3rd Regiment Army Air Corps was granted the freedom of St Edmundsbury. In March 2011, the former prince was at the cathedral for the dedication of its ceiling. Then in July 2011, he was at Watersham to present Afghanistan medals again. West Suffolk Council has been showcasing the results of a scheme to help residents insulate their homes ahead of winter. After securing a Green Homes grant from the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, the Council has been assisting eligible homeowners. Among these are Chris and Anne Britton, residents of Shepherds Grove Park in Stanton, who were assigned contractors to install a thick layer of wall insulation around their house. This helps cut energy consumption, as insulated properties conserve heat better. Mr Britton said, Being pensioners on a fixed income, it has taken a lot of the worry off of us. We had our bill for last winter after these works were carried out, and we really noticed the difference. Also benefiting from the grant were John and Jean Marjoram, who lived near the Britons in Shepherd's Grove. Mrs Marjoram said, It was very good in the winter. We really noticed the difference then, and this means we are in a better position than we would have been for the winter ahead and the increased costs in heating that we are all facing. Her husband said, When we were first contacted by the council about this, we thought it sounded too good to be true. But it was true. The contractors were excellent, and they even repainted our home afterwards. It's been brilliant. Following the completion of the work on their homes, the Britons and the Marjorams were visited by West Suffolk Council. This included council leader, Councillor John Griffiths, Cabinet Member for the Environment, Councillor Andy Drummond, and Stanton Ward Member, Councillor Jim Thorndyke. Councillor Thorndyke said, I was delighted to see and hear first-hand about the benefits that this work has already brought to many of the residents of Shepherds Grove Park, helping them save energy, keep warm in winter, and stay cool in summer. Councillor Griffiths said, we bid for this government money to help our residents in homes that had a low energy efficiency rating. So it was very good to hear from Chris, Anne, John and Jean about the real difference that this work has made. Residents can see if they are eligible for free energy efficiency improvements by going to www.warmhomesuffolk.org. Very important. And now a family-run group in awards, in awards hat trick. A Stolaktoff based care homes company has completed a hat trick of title wins in national awards. The family-run Stowe Healthcare Group has been named Care Group Provider of the Year at the National Care Awards, Caring UK Awards, and the Care Home Awards, winning all three titles within the space of eight months. The company believes it to be the first time a single provider has won the top award at three different events during such a short time frame. Ruth French, Stowe Healthcare Director, said, 
Achieving our third national award for Care Group of the Year within eight short months is beyond what we could ever have expected when we founded the company 12 years ago. What makes this extra special is that the homes we buy are very often homes with a troubled past and poor reputation. Changing the culture and standards of care in these homes requires double the effort. We thank our amazing staff who are the foundation of the fantastic care we can offer in our homes. Stowe Healthcare was founded in 2010 and now has seven residential and nursing homes across the region, three of which are rated as outstanding by the CQC. The company said the key was to do things a bit differently while not becoming complacent or getting bored with the basics. Stowe Healthcare is owned and operated by the Catchpole family and delivers care to more than 350 residents across seven homes including Brandon Park, Ford Place, Thetford, Maple Memory Centre within Brandon Park Nursing Home, Stowe Langtoff Hall and Melford Court in Long Melford. Three Suffolk Care Homes are celebrating after being shortlisted for prestigious awards. The dementia team at Davis Court in Bury St Edmunds has been nominated for the Suffolk Care Awards 2022, whilst Hartismere Place in Eye and Astorbury Place in Ipswich have been shortlisted for awards at the event recognising the efforts of individual team members. The Davis Court Dementia Team has been recognised for their exceptional level of support, providing maximum care and comfort to residents living with dementia and those who also require end-of-life care. Working closely with relatives, the team strives to create a personalised environment for each resident tailored to their likes and preferences. The care home promotes independence, with a team practising special methods that enable residents to communicate as much as possible during the later stages, further retaining their dignity and autonomy. Carol Nice, the lifestyle leader at Hartismere Place, is in the running to win the Having Fun in Adversity category, which recognises her efforts to maintain the morale of residents, relatives and fellow team members throughout the continued challenges faced by care homes in the past few years. Receptionist and lead administrator for Astorbury Place, John Masulo, has been nominated for the Innovative Practice Award, highlighting his integral role within the home and his commitment to implementing innovative practices to improve services. Throughout the pandemic, John went above and beyond to ensure loved ones still had as much opportunity to visit residents as they could. Sally Shadbolt, the home manager at Davis Court, said, We are incredibly proud of our team at Davis Court and of those nominated alongside us at other homes. Everyone works tirelessly to ensure that all residents are respectfully supported to achieve independence and personal goals and that their relatives are supported in equal measure. The comfort, well-being and happiness of residents is always a top priority. From helping residents decorate their rooms, to arranging celebrity phone calls and planning exciting trips, all team members go to the nth degree to ensure residents are fulfilled. We'd like to take this opportunity to say a huge thank you and well done to everyone who made the shortlist this year. Those working in care, in whatever capacity, make a huge impact on people's lives. 
and it is heartwarming to see their hard work is deservedly rewarded. And now we've got um, a little item looking back, and the first one is 10 years ago, and this is particularly pertinent to our editor, whose uh, young musician is of the friend of a uh, is the son of a friend of hers. Um, and he's a young musician, was proving to be years ahead of his game in 2012 after passing grade six with distinction in the saxophone. Ben Hartick of Horscroft Roadbury St Edmunds won success at the age of 10, some seven years ahead of the normal age to achieve the grade. Then 11, the pupil at St Louis Middle School became interested in the instrument when he was three after watching a family friend play. Tutor Phil Marshall from Icklingham said that in 20 years of teaching, Ben was by far the most advanced for his age. He said, I could see Ben was naturally gifted, and he flew from a young age. And just as a PS, he's now at Leeds University studying engineering, and he's still playing the saxophone, apparently. So now we go back 25 years to novel Hero Visits Fire Station. A Ukrainian firefighter, one of the last still alive who tackled the nuclear power station fire in Chernobyl, visited fellow firefighters in Bury St Edmunds in 1997. With 300 colleagues, sub-colonel Igor Venobdib was in Chernobyl for two weeks in May 1986 with no special protective clothing other than a face mask and his health had suffered badly since. Many of the firefighters died of radiation poisoning. Firefighters Beresford Matthews and Patrick Dacey, members of Berry's Green Watch, first met Mr Venobdib when they helped to drive medical supplies and surplus fire equipment to Ukraine for the forgotten children of Chernikov Charity. And now, 50 years ago, the council may lift a ban on dogs in flats. Residents in Thetford Council flats were to be asked if they wanted restrictions lifted on keeping dogs in their homes in 1972. A meeting of Thetford Borough Council Housing Committee decided to send a questionnaire to every flat dweller. The committee would consider the result of the referendum before deciding if a ban on dogs in flats should be lifted. At the time, anyone who had a dog prior to moving in was allowed to keep it until it died, but once they moved in they were not allowed to buy a dog. Tenants living in council houses were allowed to keep dogs. And now we're coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you've been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal from whose pages most of our items have been taken. But finally... We are not the BBC, but we can pretend to be just like them, and I'm going to read you the weather forecast for the coming weekend. <laughs> I'm wearing my dicky bow and my smart jacket, just to prove you're like the BBC. And what have you got on your bottom? <laughs> uh, I, I, really, I really couldn't comment on okay. that. OK, <laughs> we'll let that one go. <laughs> I hope it's not the striped pyjamas you were wearing last week. Oh, what a giveaway. <laughs> so for Friday, we have it's rather cloudy with the chance of showery rain but a few brighter spells, light southwesterly winds and variable later. Maximum temperature only 18 degrees oh centigrade dear. or 64 Fahrenheit. Saturday, 
Bright spells, but thicker cloud will bring a scattering of showers, moderate northeasterly winds. Again, same temperature, maximum 18 degrees centigrade or 64 Fahrenheit. Uh, Sunday, a few isolated showers are possible, but staying mainly dry with sunny intervals, light northerly winds. Again, 18 degrees centigrade or 64 Fahrenheit. And finally, Monday, when I'm afraid it's going to get a little bit cooler, a cloudy, blustery day with outbreaks of squally rain spreading southwards. Moderate to fresh southwesterly winds, maximum 15 degrees or 59 Fahrenheit. So now, News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from us all here, the editor Claire Meller, your producer and reader, Harvey, <laughs> and myself, Sue. Goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio. Thank you.